2: When I'm working out, I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it, taking my breath away. Aaron, Fern, Fern Lundquist joins me, Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun, NASCAR icon seven. Dale Earnhardt Jr. Curb Streaks is, Kirk, Kirk the is podcast, podcast, on the phone. The Here. Here. The sports podcast. We by the Sports Podcast. Yeah. It is Monday, is August seventh, two thousand twenty-three. People, I hope everybody's doing well. I hope everybody is having a great day. And let me just say this. Football's coming, baby. We are three. How about this? Three weeks from today, we will have week zero games to react to. College football's coming. We got a loaded episode of the Air Sports Podcast here on a Monday. We're going to open. I want to be a little bit lighter. Last week with all the realignment stuff, it got a little bit heavy. So what I'm going to do. Over the next two episodes, we're going to do a two-part series. The 10 most intriguing storylines in college football going into the year. Part one starts today. We're going to talk about Georgia's three-peat. Texas and Oklahoma's last year in the Big 12. Uh, what if Michigan beats Ohio State for a third straight year? And oh, by the way, the single best game on the schedule. Part two will be on Wednesday. show. From there, we will take a quick break just a little bit of a realignment reset the fallout from last week. What you need to know a little bit about the four schools left behind. Got some interesting information there. And then how about this? One little hoops recruiting note. It's August and teams are adding players. How about UCLA? Two marquee international recruits. We talked about Kentucky adding an international recruit last year, last week, excuse me, How about UCLA and Big McEnergy adding two new players? Fascinating story. I think it's a fascinating narrative for all of college hoops. So we got a lot of ground to cover. It's August. It's almost football season, and I don't want to waste any more time. So let's get to the topic of the day. And the topic of the day, listen, as I told you just a moment ago, we did four episodes of the Aaron Torres pod last week, and I'll be blunt. It got a little bit heavy, right? But it was because there was so much realignment news coming that it just felt like every day there was a new story. The Pac-12 commissioner presents a TV deal. Then the Big Ten gets involved. Then the Big 12. What about this? What about that? And Friday, it all blew up. And so while it was a heavy week in college sports, I thought it was an important week. But today what I want to do, I want to focus on the fun Of the sport of college football. We all watch sports. You listen to podcasts and shows like this because you love sports, you love the entertainment, you love the drama, you love the whatever. And so instead of doing all the negativity from last week, let's focus on the positive. And over the next two episodes, I'm going to give you 10 narratives, 10 storylines that I find fascinating going into college football season in the fall of 2023. We're going to start with five today and get to five on Wednesday's show. Let's jump into it. Let's not waste any more time. And let's get to the first, the number one narrative, in my opinion, in college football going into this year. I don't even think it's a debate. It is Georgia going for a three-peat. Now, listen, we talked a little bit a few weeks ago about just Georgia, where are they at? Can they 3 peep? I remember because I made the Tom Amansky back-to-back-to-back national championships joke, so I know we talked about it at some point, okay? Um, But I think I last time spoke about it more of a statement of my concerns about Georgia after a tumultuous offseason. By the way, concerns are obviously relative when you're coming off back-to-back national championships. But Georgia is, in fact... Outside of Tom Amansky's defensive drill superstars going to try to be the first college football team. And I know Tom Amansky wasn't college football, but bear with the bad joke, okay? But uh, Tom Amansky. But Georgia is the first football team in college to go for three straight titles since, how about this, Minnesota in the 1930s. So it's been forever, but to me, this is the single biggest narrative in the sport. Last year, it was about proving that the first time the first championship wasn't a fluke. Two years ago, it was about doing it for the first time in 40 years. Now it is about making history and etching your name in college football lore. On a positive, first of all, the positive is they can absolutely do it. They're going to be preseason number one when the AP poll and the USA Today coaches poll comes out, and deservedly so. And you look at what is needed to go three straight titles. I think they pretty much got it right from a talent perspective. We've talked about it really since January being at the national championship game in SoFi stadium. I will never get over Kirby smart going to the podium and basically saying guys bluntly, this was kind of the rebuilding year. We have a lot coming back. We know how talented we can be. And now it's about the mindset. It is about focusing on us, and it is about being the best version of us. So the talent is there across the board. We're going to talk about the quarterback in a minute, but the skill positions are there. Brock Bowers is maybe the best pure football player in college football, not named Marvin Harrison Jr. Maybe Caleb Williams is in that conversation as well. Um, You know, the running backs are there. Wide receiver, they had two marquee additions in the portal. Dominic Lovett from Missouri, Ra Thomas from Mississippi State. O-line is always fierce and the defense is always fierce as well. And they return most everybody from last year's title team, including Javon Bullard as a safety, Uh, you know, Smile Munden, on and on and on and on and on. So the talent is there. And obviously a big narrative this offseason has been the schedule. I'm not going to blame Georgia. I'm not going to yell at them. I'm not going to complain. They were scheduled to play Oklahoma. That got canceled with Oklahoma coming to the SEC. And obviously, the SEC schedule broke the way that it did. But bluntly, the toughest games on Georgia's schedule coming into this year are as follows. It is Tennessee on the road, Ole Miss at home, Kentucky at home. That's not necessarily Georgia's fault. Again, Oklahoma was supposed to be on the schedule. But at the same time, you talk about a manageable pathway to a third straight, at the very least, SEC East title, potentially a third straight playoff appearance, potentially a third straight national championship. It's there. Now, in terms of what could hold them back, a couple things stand out. One, it's obviously not just that you're replacing Stetson Bennett, a quarterback, but that you're doing it with a new offensive coordinator. That, to me, is the part I I feel like we're overstating the quarterback because Carson Beck has been there for four years in the program, knows the history, knows what to expect. I think a lot of people in that program thought he was ready to start last year if Stetson Bennett hadn't used his COVID year. So I'm not really worried about the quarterback. But the quarterback with the new offensive coordinator, just a tiny little bit of a concern. Beyond that, it's also worth noting, Thought it was interesting. Kirby Smart at SEC Media Days was asked by Josh Pate about, uh, you know, about his biggest concerns. He said he doesn't think the the guys up front are quite as good as they've been with Jalen Carter, with Nolan Smith, with guys like that. So don't feel too bad for Georgia's defensive line depth. But Kirby Smart doesn't look at his team the way that most schools look at their teams in terms of problems. His problems are caviar problems. His problems are national championship problems. And to get to a third straight national championship and to win it, you obviously have to be firing on all cylinders. And finally, I'll just say the other thing that stands out, it's just so hard to do. And I think beyond it being so hard to do, I just think the play, there's no way, and this isn't a criticism of the players or this or that. It's really hard to get a group of guys that for the most part, there aren't a lot of guys in that locker room left that haven't finished seasons in that program without it ending in a national championship to get them to focus on the weekend, week out urgency that comes with playing college football at the highest level. So to me, the number one most interesting thing, are we talking in mid-January about a third straight Georgia national championship? Number one most intriguing story to me. Number two, most intriguing story to me in college football this year. It doubles as, in my opinion, maybe the most interesting game in college football outside of probably Michigan-Ohio State. Like Michigan-Ohio State could have a lot on the line, and we're going to discuss that momentarily. But in terms of the most interesting games, maybe outside of the big game, it is week one, Sunday night, Labor Day weekend, Florida State and LSU. And it's for two different reasons. It's because, one, those teams are going to be really good. And two, I kind of think it's the last of an era. What do I mean by that? Let's start with the teams. Two very good teams. For people who are just now getting caught up with their college football prep. When the first AP poll comes out, these will both be top 10 teams. Florida State, Mike Norvell, what he has done, in my opinion, in two short years, three three short years, he took over in 2020 for COVID. It's incredible. Finished last year on a six-game win streak, beat Florida, beat Oklahoma in the bowl game, 10-win season, and you talk about a program riding momentum, Florida State is it. They have figured out the portal. They have figured out NIL. I think they've done a good job in NIL of retaining good players. Again, the portal—they've had a ton of success filling holes. Jordan Travis is a guy that many people legitimately think can win the Heisman. So I am just fascinated by them, and of course the LSU stuff. Listen, I feel like I've talked LSU ad nauseum this off-season already. We're still three weeks away, but LSU Brian Kelly year two won ten games last year, beat Bama last year, dominated the bowl game, and again. In terms of frontline talent, starting 22, you could make the case LSU is the most talented team in college football, and these are two teams that believe they are going to the playoff and can compete for a national championship. But what's more interesting to me about LSU Florida, it isn't just the talent on the field. What's most interesting to me, I think this is a little bit of a dying thing in college football in terms of what we're going to see on that first Sunday night of the season. One, as we consolidate power in college football, I'm just not sure how many great out-of-conference games we get. Eventually, the Big Ten feels like it's going to 10 league games. Eventually, the SEC is certainly going to go to nine and maybe over time get to 10. And so when you factor that in, and when you factor in that most all of the good teams are in one conference or the other, outside of a Notre Dame, a Clemson, a Florida State, How many marquee out-of-conference games can there be and will there be? Now, the in-conference games will be awesome, but the out-of-conference games, I don't know. Beyond that, and this is the important part to me. Remember, next year we go to a 12-team college football playoff. And as I've said a million times, the whole context of the sport and how we consume it is going to change. What we all love about college football, it is that. Right now, heading into 2023, every single game matters. For LSU and Florida State who play on opening night, whoever ends up losing that game, they're going to have their back against the wall the entire rest of the season. Their back is going to be against the wall. They're basically going to have to win out. That is not how college football is going to be a year from now and pretty much for the rest of time. LSU can lose that game and maybe lose another and maybe lose another and still make the playoff. Florida State, it's the same deal. And so to me, that's why this game is so intriguing. It's going to have that old feel, old school college football feel of we lose this game. We could be in big, big, big trouble. Fascinated by that LSU-Florida State game in week one. Keep it going. Number three, most intriguing storylines. It's this. What if Ohio State loses to Michigan for a third straight year? Now, to be blunt, I'm not going to do the thing, especially in August, that oh, if Ryan Day loses to Michigan, he's on the hot seat. That's not what I'm saying at all. Guy is 45 and six as the head coach at the university at, at Ohio State University, excuse me. And if you actually look at the six, it's kind of incredible. Three losses in the playoffs. Clemson one year, uh Alabama and then of course Georgia last year. And the other two of the other three are to Michigan. So he's 45 and 6 as the head coach of Ohio State. But at the same time, I go back to what I said the day after Ohio State lost to Michigan a year ago. When you're Ryan Day, when you're the head coach of Ohio State, when you are paid 8 or 9 million dollars a year, You're not paid $8 million a year to smack around Indiana, smack around Rutgers, smack around Iowa. You're paid for three things. Beat Michigan, win the Big Ten, go to the playoff to compete for championships. And so because of it, that's why I'm fascinated. What if Ryan, and by the way, I talked about this last year on this show around this time. Because remember, last year it was one win for Michigan and it was kind of like, well, what does it really mean? And even going into that game last November, remember, there was all the talk of, oh, you know, the the game was in Ann Arbor, and it was cold weather, and everybody at Ohio State had the flu and blah, 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 and this and that. As I said at the time, it was almost like that story your grandfather told you about walking to school uphill both ways, 10 feet of snow. Every time you heard about Ohio State's loss to Michigan two years ago, the narrative got worse and crazier. And so I bring it up because what happens if they lose for a third straight time this year? Ryan Day isn't getting fired, but I think you got to ask some tough questions about if he is the guy to get Ohio State back to the elite of the elite in college football. Now, maybe that's unfair. Maybe because bluntly um, we're going to a 12-team playoff We're in a year from now, again, to go back to what I just said a minute ago. A year from now, you might not even have to beat Michigan to win the national championship. Heck, last year, you didn't have to beat Michigan to compete for a national championship. So I am so interested to watch this story because for Ohio State, and I'll say this for Ohio State too, they got a really tough schedule. Out of conference, they play at Notre Dame. In conference, they're the only one of the big three, uh, uh, Penn State, Michigan, and Ohio State. They're the only one to play Wisconsin that is in Madison, that's a already been deemed to be a night game. So that's going to be one of the toughest environments in college football. But again, Ryan Day, he loses again to Michigan. I think people are going to be asking tough questions about the, the situation he inherited from Urban Meyer and whether he can get them back to a, to a team that actually wins a national championship. Let's keep it going. Number four most intriguing storyline. So I talked a few weeks ago about is Texas back? We'll save that one maybe for part two, because I want to just talk about the fact that Oklahoma and Texas are both going into their last year in the big 12. I think they're walking into a snake pit of tough, tough, tough games in this league. And that's why to me, it's interesting. Now keep in mind, this is different than the PAC 12, Oregon, Washington, basically everybody, the PAC 12, isn't going to exist beyond the 2023 season. And so I bring it up because most everybody's kind of going their own direction. It's like signing yearbooks the last day of high school. You like it, you know, Oregon and Arizona like each other. See you down the road. Best of luck next year. That's not how it is in the Big 12. And so when I look at this season for Texas and Oklahoma, there's three reasons I am so interested in seeing how this plays out. One, I don't think there's that much of a gap between Texas and Oklahoma. And so, listen, I've heard all the Texas stuff, and Oklahoma actually has the same over-under win total in the Betfred Sportsbook 9.5. But at the same time, this is what stands out to me about that league. I think every other league you look, the gap between best and worst is pretty big. Like the gap between, say, Clemson and Georgia Tech, right? I don't care how much Georgia Tech hates Clemson, Clemson's smacking them around. Same with whoever, you know, Boston College and Florida State. Same in the SEC with Georgia and Vanderbilt. And I think Vanderbilt's gonna be good this year. I don't think there's that much of a gap between Texas and about five, six other teams in that league, whether it's Kansas State, TCU, Baylor, whomever. I'm not buying that Texas is significantly better than anybody. Two, again. This isn't the big, this isn't the Pac 12. In the Big 12, a lot of those schools are staying around and a lot of those schools want blood against Texas and Oklahoma. Those road games are going to be insane and those road games are tough. Texas on the road this year plays at Baylor, at TCU. And remember, Houston is now in the Big 12. Those are three former Southwest Conference rivals that you have to go on the road that you may never play again anytime in the foreseeable future for Oklahoma bedlam, the last version of bedlam on the road, Oklahoma state has said, we are not continuing this series. You know, I don't even want to say good luck, Oklahoma, because it wasn't a good luck. They also, Oh, by the way, Oklahoma plays late in the season at BYU weird stuff happens when it's snowing and it's November in Utah. So I'm just so intrigued because those two factors, I don't think there's that much of a gap between Texas and TCU, Oklahoma and Kansas state, heck Kansas, Kansas put up like 40 points a game last year. Baylor's interesting. Houston's interesting. BYU's tough. You go on and on down the list, tough teams, tough road games. And finally, and we've talked about this. This isn't a new narrative. You need some momentum going into the sec. Texas cannot be 7-5 and going into the SEC. Oklahoma can't be coming off a second straight losing season under Brent Venables. Otherwise, this stuff is going to spiral quick. A lot of pressure on those two teams. Finally, number five, in terms of my most intriguing storylines coming into this year, kind of playing off the last one, the swan song for the Pac-12. And I've said this many times, but the sad part about the Pac-12 It's going to be a good football conference this year. I'll take it a step further. I just talked about the Big 12. I believe, in my opinion, there would be a minimum of five teams that if they were in the Big 12 would be favored to win that league. USC, Oregon, Washington, Utah. Maybe not five. I, I think you could make the case for UCLA. I really do. Well, you look at this year. This league is going to be awesome. Obviously starts with USC. Caleb Williams is going to be awesome. The question is, can he get better? But more specifically, can the defense get better? Everybody knows the narrative. Defense was not good. And so the question becomes, is there enough there out of the portal? And is there enough there out of the freshman class to make a difference? They were not good last year. Good news in the portal. They did good work. Bear Alexander, transfer from Georgia up front. Anthony Lucas, transfer from Texas A&M up front. Mason Cobb, Oklahoma State's leading tackler from a year ago in it at USC. But at the same time, at the same time, remember, they have to be really good. And oh, by the way, the teams that they're trying to compete with at the highest level, they don't have one or two elite defensive linemen. They've got like 12 of them. USC is going to be good. I actually think Oregon's going to be really good. Bo Nix is back. Bo Nix is awesome. He has a lot of talent around him. Thought they too kind of addressed the defensive front. Mateo Uyangalale, the brother of DJ, is in as a defensive end at Oregon. Five-star recruit. Uh, Added Jordan Birch from South Carolina out of the portal. Thought Oregon did a really good job. They might even be my pick to win it when it's all said and done. Utah, the reigning two-time champ. Big thing with them. Cam Rising, their starting quarterback, got hurt in the Rose Bowl. Will he be ready for week one? Washington's going to be really good. UCLA is going to be really good. And how about Oregon State, which is coming off a 10 win season? So fun league, interesting league. That is my fifth most intriguing storyline going into the college football season. Those five again, Georgia's pursuit of a three peat. Uh, Florida State, LSU in week one. What if Michigan beats Ohio State for a third straight year? Maybe more appropriately, what if Ohio State loses to Michigan for a third straight year? Uh, also, we have the Big 12 in the final year with Texas and Oklahoma and the Pac-12 in the final, basically, iteration of it all. Speaking of which, that's what I want to do. Take a quick break. By the way, part two will come on Wednesday show. Still some fun stuff. What's up with Bama? Jimbo Fisher, what's his future? think there's an interesting Notre Dame angle. Oh, by the way, how about Coach Prime in Colorado? All right, quick break. We're going to come back. We ended this segment on the Pac 12. I just kind of want to do some cleanup from last week. We went four days in a row on realignment. Now it's here. Now it's done. What does it mean for everybody? But most specifically, what is next for the Stanfords, the Cows, Oregon State, Washington State? Quick break. Be right back. All right, we're going to get back to the show in a minute. But before we do, I want to welcome back our presenting sponsor, Betfred Sportsbook and the Betfred Sportsbook app. By now, you know Betfred's story started in 1967 in the U.K., over a 1,000 shops in the U.K., and they have now come to the United States and made a major splash. They are the presenting sponsor of not only all things Aaron Torres Media, but the Colorado Rockies, the Denver Broncos, the Cincinnati Bengals. And what I love about Betfred, Nobody takes care of their customers quite like Betfred does. I've been telling you that for a year. We have sent listeners of the Aaron Torres pod to Denver Broncos VIP tailgates. The Betfred suite at Cincinnati Bengals games is rocking. Betfred bettors have thrown out first pitch at the Colorado Rockies games. Nobody takes care of their customers quite like Betfred. And here is what they are doing for you right now. How about this? Bet $50 on any game. Get up to $1,111 in free bets. Here's how it works. Download the Betfred Sportsbook app. Bet 50 bucks on anything you want to bet on. You automatically get $111 in free bets. But beyond that, you get up to $200 in insurance for your first five weeks as a Betfred customer, totaling $1,111 in free bets. I've told you for a year, nobody takes care of their customers quite like Betfred. They're the only book that I bet with And I want to thank Betfred for being our presenting sponsor.
1: Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com.
0: It's my little escape.
1: Now Judy's the life of the party.
0: Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon.
1: Whoa, take it easy, Judy. (laughs)
0: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. VGW group void. were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All right,
2: everybody. Hi, I'm back. Gonna be back. Gonna be back. Um, So I guess what I would say is, first of all, it was really good to just talk some on the field college football stuff. Last week was a tumultuous frankly, historic week in college sports. It got a little serious. It wasn't as fun. We had to discuss it in real time, but also like you listen to a show like this because you love college football. You love college basketball. And so I'm glad that we are now able to talk a little bit about the stuff on the field and the season ahead. At the same time, There are still some kind of odds and ends, some loose ends from the realignment talk of the last week or so that I do want to get to just right now. And and one of them involves a question I actually got quite a bit here over the last couple days following the Friday announcement that three schools are going to the Big 12, two schools are going to the Big 10. That question is, what the heck happens to the four remaining schools, Oregon State, Washington State, Stanford, and Cal? And so I made some phone calls. I talked to some people at those schools uh, and I'll be blunt. It was a little bit of a dark, dire, sad deal. Um, You know, I could say quickly as a UConn alum, UConn actually was kicked out of the big East a few years ago. It was a very similar situation. So I want to talk about what I saw, what I heard, what I know, what I think I know, and what is next for those programs. But before we do, let me start by saying this one I speak for a lot of college sports fans when I say Washington state fans, Oregon state fans, Cal and Stanford, I'm sorry. And we like, this situation sucks. There's no other way to put it. And I'll say this, I actually feel especially bad for Oregon state and Washington state fans, Cal and Stanford. And we're going to discuss this momentarily. I do believe there was a level of institutional arrogance at those schools. They kind of just thought we're in the power structure We've been in the power structure. We're Stanford. We're Cal. We're gonna be here forever. And they didn't put they didn't put the most resources, effort in. They haven't been very good in the meaningful sports. And I think they learned the hard way this weekend. Like, like you got to compete. Nobody is guaranteed anything. Oregon State and Washington State, on the other hand, listen, they have certain geographical limitations. I get that. They have some pretty good products on the field, though. Oregon State is coming off a 10-win season in college football. I don't know how many people know that. Oregon State last year beat Oregon. They beat Florida in a bowl game. They won 10 games. They were one of the great teams, and they're going to start this year in the top 20. Washington State, first full year with Jake Dickert as the head coach, seven wins, looks really good. Oregon State baseball has won national championships. So these are athletic departments that have put as much money into their product as they can. And you feel bad for him. Now, in terms of what's next, first of all, let me say this. I've seen a couple reports, oh, they're staying together and they're going to figure it out and they're going to add teams. No one's coming. Okay, listen, I try not to criticize other media members on this show. But there's a guy who covers Oregon State, John Canzano. He's trying to make a living. I'm not being critical. But he put out this story. They're sticking together. Well, first of all, everybody has been saying that they're sticking together for the last year. And we saw how well that worked out last week. But realistically, nobody is joining those four schools because they have no value, because if they did, they wouldn't be in this situation, okay? The Mountain West, as an example, I get that their TV deal isn't the SEC or the Big Ten, but the Mountain West, you think schools are going to leave the Mountain West to go play with those four schools? Keep in mind, by the way, keep in mind, it would cost over $30 million in an exit fee to leave. Before the 2025 season. And so you think schools are going to pay $30 million. And oh, by the way, the TV deal was for $20 million with Oregon, Washington, Arizona, Utah, and Arizona state. Stop, stop. So you're not adding schools. And realistically, I think we're going to start to find out pretty soon that these four schools are splitting apart for Oregon state and Washington state. Listen, I think realistically, it makes a lot of sense to go to the the Mountain West. It's not perfect. It's not ideal. But geographically, it makes sense. Uh, You know, Boise State's there. Colorado State's there. Fresno State's there. San Diego State, et cetera. Um, And a couple things stand out. You know, one, the money's not as good, but it's something. Two, I think it actually makes sense for the Mountain West to add those schools. Because like I said, they are playing good football and they do add value. And if you're Oregon State and Washington State, I think there is one other thing to remember. This season, when they'll play in the Pac-12, but their first season post-Pac-12, there are still a lot of automatic bids in that college football playoff. Remember, college football playoff, six auto bids to the sixth highest ranked conference champions. So if you're Oregon State, go to the Mountain West. You're going to have the opportunity to win that league and go to the college football playoff in year one. Don't know how all the TV money and the shares work out from there. But that to me is the play. Go dominate that league. Go destroy everybody. And I'm not saying the league is easy to win. But then put yourself in position to have success whenever that next round of realignment comes about. For Cal and Stanford, I think it's a little bit of a different deal. Stanford specifically is in a very unique spot. Talked to somebody there today. On Sunday, I should say. Stanford doesn't even have a school president. So Stanford, like there's nobody calling the shots there in terms of what to do. Their AD. I'm sure he's a nice guy. I haven't really heard glowing things about him. I mean, first of all, just keep in mind, the basketball program has been a mess. I think everybody kind of thought that Jared Haas, the the head coach, he was out after last year. They let Jared Haas stay for another year. But I talked to somebody at Stanford today on Sunday, keep saying today. And they kind of told me point blank, we haven't heard anything from the 80s office all year long. And I think everybody over there just kind of hoped it'd be fine and prayed it'd be fine. And we're Stanford. Somebody's going to want us. Listen, the bottom line, if you take any one thing out of this round of realignment, stop talking about TV markets, population centers, whatever. TV networks don't care about that anymore. They care about your brand. And if you bring eyeballs to the TV, nobody cares that Stanford and Cal are in the Bay Area. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't want to say nobody cares. Maybe some school presidents care, but the decision makers at these TV networks do not care. They don't. And so because of it, because of it, I don't know what those those two schools do. Now, Stanford financially, if they wanted to go independent for a while, they probably could. Certainly in football, they're still a national brand. They have the home and home with Notre Dame every year. I bet they could probably piece together games with like a USC uh you know some of these West Coast schools Cal obviously if Cal continues to play high level college football I don't know that it makes sense though for the rest of the athletic department I get like like I just I I don't know that you can put together an independent schedule in basketball in 2023 2024 2025 this era in baseball, in whatever. By the way, Stanford's really good at all these sports. So I don't know what this means for their future. They don't have a lot of good options right now. What they got to pray for, you know what they got to pray for? They got to pray that Notre Dame decides, you know what, we need to get into a conference, and Stanford has to ride their coattails hard. Ride their coattails hard. Cal, I don't know what the heck Cal's going to do, and it's really interesting. I've heard that Cal, in the last probably six months, at least on the basketball front, they've made a real commitment to their new head coach, Mark Madsen. They have a real collective set up. Mark Madsen has talked publicly about having, um, you know, a a new practice facility being built. And I believe what they essentially said was like, we need to position ourselves. So whenever the next round of realignment is, we're interesting to other schools, uh, other conferences. Problem is it came a lot faster than anybody expected. And now I don't know what that school does. This is a school that's in tens of millions of dollars in debt in their athletic department. And that's with Pac-12 TV money. What are you going to do when that when that well, when that spigot dries up? I don't know. And listen, I, I said it the other day. I don't know about every sport. I could see Cal being the first program that I can remember in my lifetime that de-emphasizes major college athletics. Now, the problem, of course, you, you, you de-emphasize football, you either drop down the FCS or you get rid of football. That's 85 scholarships with Title IX. you got to figure out you're going to have to eliminate some women's sports too. So I don't think that's what Cal wants to do, but I don't know what other options you would realistically have. I don't think Mount the Mountain West from a, you know, what's the right way to put it, from a cultural fit, is it makes sense for Cal. Don't think that makes sense. Do you somehow, you know, keep your non-revenue sports in like a WCC with Gonzaga and St. Mary's? I don't know, but it's not pretty and it's not ideal. And I do feel bad for these four schools going forward. Really quickly, let me add one last thing before I get out of here, because this is something that's been rattling around in my head the last couple of days. That's this. I think Stanford and Cal specifically, they should be a wake-up call to a lot of athletic departments in the country. And what I mean by that is this, what I just said a minute ago, Stanford and Cal, I think they always kind of thought like, oh, we're Stanford or Cal or we're, we're grandfathered into this power conference structure. We don't have to compete at the highest level. We can hire an inferior coach, kind of a buddy, like. They've made bad coaching hires. We can hold on to a coach for an extra year or two. It's fine. We're Cal. We're Stanford. What's going to happen? We're Cal and Stanford. Well, as we, learned out, as we learned, nothing is guaranteed. Nothing is promised. Nobody is loyal to anybody. And it's an interesting thought process going forward. Because remember, why did the Pac-12 ultimately break up? USC and UCLA thought they deserved more money than everybody else in the league. They didn't get it. They bounced. Then Oregon and Washington felt like we deserve more money than anybody in the league. They didn't get it. They bounced. Why is Florida State trying to get out of the ACC? They feel like they deserve more money than everybody else. They bounced. Texas and Oklahoma, the same for the SEC. And so my thought process is the next round of realignment. Yeah, I think there's always going to be a home if the ACC breaks up for the Florida States, the Clemsons, the North Carolinas, the Virginias. But I also do wonder if the next round of realignment is retraction instead of expansion. I never thought about it until the last couple of days. But if Florida State isn't happy with the ACC deal and USC and UCLA aren't happy with the Pac-12 deal, how soon until Ohio State says, you know what? We're kind of tired of subsidizing Rutgers. And Alabama and LSU kind of get in the corner and say, why are we giving Vanderbilt the cut of the pie? And Michigan and Penn state say, wait a second. Now, why does Northwestern get the same amount that we do when we're the superior athletic department, by the way, I think that's happening in the ACC right now, Florida state's trying to get out, but ultimately it's a Boston college. It's a Syracuse that they're sitting there saying like, why, why, why do they get the same money as us? And I do wonder if that ACC deal breaks, is Boston College and Syracuse are they the next version of Cal and Stanford and Washington State and Oregon State today? So I could go on and on, but in the end, um, you know, one, I feel really bad for those schools. Few of you asked me what did I think was going to happen, and like I said, I I, I think, uh, I think it's a sad, sad future and a sad reality for those four schools. Hope I'm wrong. Wish them nothing but the best. All right, so what we're going to do, take a quick break. When we come back, how about this? A little college hoops news. We haven't done much college hoops the last month because there's not much going on. But over the weekend, UCLA got not one, but two elite high school international recruits for their basketball program. I think this is a fascinating trend after what happened at Kentucky last week. They got their international guy. want to talk about that. Quick break. Be right back.
0: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. VGW group prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. All
2: right, everybody. I am back. Good to be back. Good to be back. Final segment of the show. So good to be back, baby. All right, so here's the deal, right? I, I, I know that I've said this three or four times over the last month, but it's not that often, I feel like anyway, that we get worthwhile college basketball news in August. Bottom line, transfer portal's done, recruiting's done. Uh, players are literally showing up to campus. after If they didn't show up for the spring classes, they're showing up for fall classes here in the next few weeks. But there is an interesting story that is absolutely worth discussing here at the end of today's Aaron Torres pod. And it's a little bit of a follow-up from last week when we discussed Zanavir Ivisovich. Of course, the seven foot-two Croatian who committed to play for the University of Kentucky. Well, we have more international recruiting news. And it comes from a very interesting place. That is Westwood, California, California, excuse me, home of the UCLA Bruins. And if you follow College Hoops news in the offseason, if you listen to this show, I know you do. A little bit of a quiet offseason for UCLA coming off a third straight sweet 16. They basically lost everybody off their roster. Jaime Haquez, first round pick of the Heat. Tiger Campbell gone. Uh, Amari Bailey, second round pick, gone. Basically, outside of a Dembona, a six foot ten freshman now going into a sophomore year, they lost essentially everybody who played significant minutes a year ago. And bluntly, um, over the last couple months, I've kind of just wondered, okay, what is the game plan? What are they doing? Well, they have decided, just like K- Kentucky did a week ago. They're going international, baby, only they are going to the extreme, okay? So last week, Kentucky adds a potential second-roundish type pick in Zanavir Visevic. UCLA has doubled down. They already had two international players committed, and in the last week, they have added two international players that some believe will be draft picks in next year's NBA draft, the first one, on Thursday. This was the big one both literally and figuratively, as they got a commitment from Adai Mara, a seven foot three center from the country of Spain. Some have him projected as a literal top five pick in in the 2024 NBA draft. Most have him in the lottery. And then also on Saturday, now this was the kid that I was excited about when I watched some film. Forgive me for butchering his name from the beautiful country of Turkey, Birka Bayukten still, Birka Bayukten still a six, nine forward from Turkey, second international player to commit in the previous couple days, another draftable NBA prospect coming to college basketball. And let me say this great for UCLA and bluntly, I think this is a bigger picture story for college basketball that we absolutely need to discuss. Now, in terms of these two players, let me start by saying this, okay torres he's got some weird habits okay and saturday night did my radio show could not sleep and so i decided you know what maybe i'll talk about this on sunday show maybe i should spend some time breaking down film doing some research whatever bluntly i am far from an international recruiting expert but these dudes can ball okay adai mara as i said seven foot three center played for the uh, Spain, uh, uh, I think it was the U18 national team over the course of the summer, 15 points, nine rebounds, two assists, almost three blocks per game. And as I said, a projected lottery pick that if you watch film of this kid, he has a chance to be a very good college basketball player immediately this season. Not only because he's seven foot three, but this is not that old school seven foot three stiff that that plays two feet from the basket. This kid is athletic. He's skilled. Listen, you don't want to ever compare anybody to a reigning two time or or the reigning finals MVP and two time MVP and Nikola Jokic, but he's got that European flair to his game. You kind of dump the ball to him 15 feet from the basket. He can make plays for others. He can kick it out to shooters. He can get buckets himself again. Pretty athletic, not an elite, elite, elite athlete, but but pretty athletic, skilled passer, playmaker, etc. And like I said a few times, projected as a potential top five pick in the twenty twenty three NBA, twenty twenty four NBA draft. Excuse me. Beyond that, this was the kid I was super intrigued by as I broke some stuff down very late on Saturday night and read some articles by Upton. Still, Birka by Upton. Still, okay. Watch this kid, very special player. Six foot eight, six foot nine, wing player, elite shooter, elite scorer. To me, reminds me a little bit of Manu Ginobili. I know that's probably cliche. Lefty, you're uh, you know Manu was obviously from Argentina, but uh, international lefty, whatever. But this kid's about six seven, six eight, a little bit taller than Manu, but a guy that can get to the rim, can finish at the rim, can make plays off the dribble. And if you leave him open, he is going to hit a three pointer has been a great, great, great player for Turkey in multiple international events was reading an interview that he did a year ago where he actually could have come over to play college basketball a year ago, decides to stay overseas. Now he's coming. He is the fourth of, so, so UCLA has seven freshmen coming in. He is the fourth one internationally. Probably worth noting, they also got a guard from Serbia named Jan Vide, who many people also believe is a very talented player. So you talk about Mick Cronin. I used to call Mick Cronin Big Mick Energy. I might have to start calling him the international man of mystery, baby. But what I would say about this, this is what I would say more than anything, because this to me is fascinating. One, I think it's great for UCLA. Bluntly, again, didn't know what they were going to do because it didn't appear as though they were super aggressive in the 2024 high school class. Um, and, and, and UCLA bluntly, and I know this probably just from living out in, in L.A., really good academic school. It's not the type of school you can just get five, six, seven transfers in over the course of the summer. To be clear, I don't begrudge any school that has done that. Don't blame Rick Pitino for overhauling his roster at St. John's. Don't blame any school that takes four, five, six transfers in a given offseason. I just don't think you could do it at UCLA. You know, you look at Mick Cronin since he's gotten there, it's been about one transfer a year. Johnny Juzang won off season, Miles Johnson won offseason. This kid, this year they took a kid from Utah, but it wasn't it's not as though this is just a place that you could take six transfers an offseason, seven transfers, four transfers. It's just not that kind of place. So it makes sense. Also, I think UCLA is weirdly equipped to handle the large influx of international players. For people who don't know, UCLA has a huge international student base. Um, my understanding is it's actually, believe it or not, the most applied to school in the country. Now, it might not be as exclusive as Harvard or Yale or whatever, but because of the number of international applications, people from all over the world know Los Angeles, international, uh, international city, international community. UCLA is, it's got a great international feel. So I, I think it's going to be really good and a good angle for UCLA. And finally, i say, I'll say, I think it's a really good angle for Mick Cronin. He is uh, to put it delicately. And I like coach Cronin don't know him well, but I think he's really good at what he does. He's not necessarily the easiest coach to play for. And when you look at his track record, his best players are kind of those under recruited under the radar players um, and I think it's hard to bring those kinds of kids in America to the United States. And so you're either going to recruit one and dones and those respectfully at times could be tough to deal with a lot of people in their ears, a lot of, I don't want to be disrespectful, but a lot of people in their ears, sometimes they come in, they know they're going to be gone in a year. They don't feel like they got to listen. Mick Cronin's the guy that's going to coach you hard. And so to go the international route. These kids, I think, have a little bit of a thicker skin, maybe a little bit more of a life experience coming from a professional setting in Europe. Makes sense for UCLA on a number of fronts. Finally, let me say this. I think this has a chance to be a big boon for college basketball. Now understand, listen, international players have always come to the United States. This isn't like new. Um, Listen, I was a kid in Connecticut, UConn had a couple Israeli players in the Dodd-Henna field and uh, Duran Sheffer when I was growing up watching UConn. So it's not as though this is the first time international players have ever come. But I don't remember the wave of talent and quality of talent that has come like it is coming this summer. These are not just players who are coming for whatever reason it might be. These are players with legit NBA aspirations. And again, in some cases, players that could spend one year overseas go into the draft when they're 19 years old, and they're choosing to play college basketball instead. Adai Mara could stay overseas, do his thing in Spain, whatever, and just chill for a year and get drafted pretty high. Uh, the Avisovic kid, kid, excuse me, that's going to Kentucky, he could have stayed overseas another year, come back. He 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 tested the draft waters this year, could have come back and, and, and re- reapplied for the draft next year. But my guy, Birka still I'm tripping over his name still, but you can still could have stayed overseas, but he wants to come and play college basketball. Now with some of that NIL, absolutely. Players can make money now. You don't have to sacrifice money, period, playing overseas or don't make any money at all by coming to play college basketball. So a lot of it is NIL. A lot of it is they can make real money while also getting – easier access and easier exposure to NBA scouts, NBA teams, American style play, American coaching, whatever, but whatever it is, I love the fact that we're now getting however many it is, whether it's two, three, four, five, whether it's a little bit more, Arizona's got three or four international players that are part of their program. I love the fact that these high profile international players can now feel comfortable coming to play major college basketball. So shout out to UCLA. Shout out to my boy, Big Mick Cronin, Big Mick Energy Baby, international man of mystery. I'll tell you what, I live in L.A. I've attended probably 50 UCLA games during my time here. Maybe not that many, maybe 35, whatever. I can't ever remember being more excited to go to a UCLA game than I am this year, practices, media availabilities, whatever, because... We got some high-profile talent at UCLA, and I think this is a great, great, great sign for college basketball. All right, I think that's it for this episode of the Airtour Sports Podcast. Woo! How about my boy, Big Big, Big Mick Energy, baby? Time for me to get out of here. If you're not subscribed to the show, please make sure to do so. Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure that you are subscribed. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. Make sure you're following on social media at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. If you got anything, as I said, college football related, make sure to hit me up. But I think that's all for today's show. Appreciate your support. Appreciate you guys listening. Fun mid-August show. College football is coming, baby. College football is coming so fast, I cannot believe it. Time for me to get out of here. Appreciate your support. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel, who hates my voice. She sure does, baby. Shout out to JJ Reddick. You F at Unblock Me, bro. Shout out to the international man of mystery, Mick Cronin. I will be back on Wednesday. New episode.